For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's December 26th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first installment of a new series just for this week called Unscripted. All this week, I'll be covering listener questions about America and the world, but no script, just a conversation answering your inquiries with a bunch of facts and data, plus my analysis and opinion. And today, we kick off Unscripted covering the Middle East and Asia with a heavy focus this morning on terrorism, China, and one listener's great question to me about what my China policies would be if I were president for a year. All right. On Wednesday, we'll be diving into U.S. politics, talking about the migration crisis, crime, plus who's really leading this country right now. And also, does voting actually matter anymore? On Thursday, it's a date that we'll be talking about me, the CIA, and this podcast. That's because you all have asked a lot of great questions about my background, including some very industrious folks who've seen some of my writings about being a Democrat formerly. Also, you want to know what comes next for the podcast, especially after you heard that interview that I conducted with Michelle Tafoya. So we'll talk about all of that. Finally, on Friday, we've got an entire episode on the future of America. We'll unpack what I see to be both the threats and the opportunities for the next five years in this country and offer you my counsel on how you all might navigate that. So let's get to this week's first installment of Unscripted, keeping in mind that this will sound a little bit different in some places and cases than our usual episode. Indeed, today is a conversation between you and me. So let's begin with our day one focus on the Middle East and Asia. And we begin with Ken from somewhere in America, and he wrote in this, Brian, with the war going on in the Middle East and the holidays upon us, we often hear about potential terror threats. Many times the authorities will say that there are no credible threats that they know of. But my question is, what's the criteria that determines whether or not a threat is credible? And who determines that exactly? So what a great question. And I'll tell you, it is a surprisingly complicated one. So let me distill it down in a way that is easy for us to to understand. So when U.S. law enforcement or intel agencies get threats, we can think of those threats by putting them into one of three buckets. So the first is, well, low confidence chatter. So this means that we have things like captured phone calls or emails or reporting from a a recruited source or a spy within, say, Al-Qaeda or Hamas. And from this, we get that, well, they want to conduct an attack on someone or something, but the threat is judged as ultimately aspirational. In other words, the various intel streams, they, they don't suggest that anyone has been recruited yet or trained or Target selected or money sent, it's just a bit aspirational. Although I should be very clear, that doesn't mean that there won't be an attack. Because it's possible that we just missed something. Maybe we didn't put the pieces together. But nevertheless, at least as of that moment when the threat comes in, 
it's not credible to a particular person or place, but it is certainly alarming enough to tell the public to be alert. So that takes us to the second threat level or bucket. That's medium confidence planning. So the same elements are true in this category, as I just mentioned. But now we're starting to get beyond aspiration. We've got more reliable and consistent streams of intelligence about the operatives or their training, the targets of the money that has been sent. It's not simply an aspirational idea. There's a, a degree of credibleness to this threat, and we're hearing it from a number of different very good vetted sources. That gives us medium confidence. But again, it's not necessarily imminent in this case. That takes us to the third threat level or bucket, if we can think of it this way, and that is a high confidence attack. So as you would guess, that means that we have multiple streams of corroborated intelligence that say, look, an attack has reached an advanced stage of planning where the terrorists are in place, the targets have been selected, and usually what happens is that communications between the attackers and the organizers, they drop off, they go dark. And that means that maybe it is now time in the next 24, 48, 72 hours when the attack will commence. Now, maybe we have enough intimate details of this attack to then use it to stop it, but maybe not. Maybe we're still missing key pieces of information. But again, what we do have from multiple streams of intelligence is that we know an attack is imminent and we have high confidence in assessing that. So, Ken, with that very generalized understanding of confidence levels and our threats, you asked, who makes the call about what threat gets what level of concern? So as you might guess from what I just spoke of, things can get a little bit squishy, right? Somewhat art, somewhat science. And that leads the operators and analysts within uh, the CIA, the FBI, and what's called the ODNI, or Office of Director of National Intelligence, they ultimately get together and they make the call. And there's a lot of debate about this, as you would imagine, and sometimes they get it right and sometimes they do not. So bringing this back to your question, Ken, we are hearing these days that the FBI and its director are, are telling us that the terror threat is elevated, that all the lights are blinking red, but there is no credible or specific threat. And yes, that is a little bit confusing. So I would say that based on what we just discussed, our three buckets of confidence or warning, we could probably, and I think fairly say with medium to high confidence that an attack or a series of attacks are looming they're beyond aspirational. There is some degree of planning, but we're missing key details. So that's how I view what the FBI director is saying to us this morning, and I offer that for your consideration. Next up, and speaking of terrorists and attacks, let's talk about the war in the Middle East. We got an email from Ira in Florida. Brian, is it true that Palestinians teach their children to hate Jews? And if that is true, how does Israel deal with that? So Ira, the short answer is yes. Palestinians teach their children to hate Jews and to annihilate the Israeli state. Let me give you some examples. So back in 2007, there was a TV show uh, in the Palestinian territories called The Pioneers of Tomorrow. It was a show for kiddos. And in 2007, the main character was a, uh, it was a Mickey Mouse ripoff, if you, if you see pictures of this. And this little Mickey Mouse character was saying to the kids, let me give you just one example of what the kids through these Palestinian territories were told, quote, you and I are laying the foundation for a world led by Islamists. We will return the Islamic community to its former greatness and liberate Jerusalem, God willing, and liberate Iraq, God willing, and liberate all the countries of the Muslims who have been invaded by the murderers, end quote. 
By the way, so this show, children can call in, and they do, and they can sing Hamas anthems about fighting the Israelis and killing the Jews, and they do. So in the year 2014, this exact same TV show had a new character because the Mickey Mouse fellow blew himself up or was killed in a terror attack. And uh, this show called him a martyr. They told the kids he was a martyr. He uh, was replaced with a rabbit. And he also told the kids that he was going to commit suicide and blow himself up to kill the Jews. And he did. So then they had to bring in a new character. It was a bear. And he did the same thing, but blew himself up and some Jews. Then there was a bumblebee. And like the others, it encouraged the kids to attack the Jews and so on and so forth. So during one of these call-in sessions, a young girl called in and said that her uncle was a police officer uh, in the Gaza Strip and he shoots Jews. And the bumblebee cheered her on and said, oh, you want to be like him someday? And she said, oh, yes, I will shoot the Jews. So it's not just TV. We also know that this stuff happens in summer camps as well in both the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So we know that back in the year 2013, the United Nations, they set up a summer camp for kids. And at this camp, which was funded by your taxpayers, by uh, taxpayer dollars, by the way, the camp uh, run by other Palestinians told the Palestinian kids that the Jews are the wolves and they steal and take things from them. Then they told the kids actually of all the cities in Israel. And they said, this is where you should be from, where you should have been born and raised because those were Arab lands. The idea, of course, here is to create resentment from the youngest of ages. And again, I just want to remind us that summer camp and this UN organization that does it, it's called the UNRWA, they get millions, hundreds of millions of your taxpayer dollars each year. I believe currently the U.S. government is their biggest funder or certainly has been historically. Okay, so now we've got TV. We've got summer camp for the kids. We've also got school curriculum. So there was a study back in 2017 that taught the kids in the Palestinian territories to glorify and value terrorism, to become martyrs, to blow themselves up and kill Jews. So let me give you one example of this in terms of mathematics and how they teach uh, the Palestinian children math. Here we go. Quote, the number of martyrs killed during the first Invitata totaled 2,026. The number of martyrs in the second Al-Aqsa Infitata totaled 5,050 people. How many martyrs died in those two Infitatas? End quote. Okay, so that's how they teach math. They use martyrs and people blowing themselves up. It's all based on this construct of killing Jews and destroying and removing the Israeli state. So that was in 2017. A lot of outrage ensued, as you would probably guess. And three years later, after lots of promises that, that would be fixed... In 2020, there was another study that looked at all of the books that were being used in the Palestinian territories, over 400 textbooks, actually. And what they found was nothing changed, right? They taught the kids, as ever, that Israel has no right to exist, that the Jews must be exterminated, and that martyrdom or suicide bombing was a righteous way to do that. So, in short, IRA, yes, Hamas, Palestinian parents, and even the United Nations, with your taxpayer dollars, are teaching kids to kill themselves and blow themselves up as they kill the Jews and annihilate the Israeli state. By the way, two months ago, Joe Biden, knowing all this, authorized $70 million in additional aid to that UN organization that teaches that stuff. Now, to be fair, it also provides food, water, medical supplies. That is all true. 
But as we also know, Hamas is taking much of that aid into its tunnel networks. I should also tell you for the past couple of years, Mr. Biden has also authorized a lot more aid, not just $70 million. He restored an additional $200 million in aid to that very same U.N. organization. Former President Donald Trump had blocked it, but Mr. Biden released it. Also, last year, Mr. Biden authorized another $316 million in aid to the U.N. or other aid organizations operating in the West Bank and Gaza. To be fair, again, folks who approve of this say it's all about humanitarian aid, helping hospitals organize themselves and take care of folks. And again, to a degree, that is certainly true. But, well, we all know that it's not exactly the full truth, is it? So there you go. That's what Hamas and Palestinian parents teach their kids, ladies and gentlemen, in part with your taxpayer dollars. Next up, we have a question from Jason in Davidson, North Carolina. Lovely place, by the way, Jason. He said, Brian, we are hearing a lot about how uh, Hamas attacks Israel and that we should expect to see Israel destroy Hamas. But what does that mean exactly? Are Gazans, you know, carrying around Hamas membership cards, making targeting easier? Or if not, should Israel kill all military-aged men in Gaza to just be done with the problem? Okay, Jason, good questions. Totally fair. So we just covered how Palestinian parents uh, teach their, their kids and, and uh, how, how they raise them. But let's step back for just a minute and, and talk about a bigger picture of why these parents are doing this in the first place, because it really gets to this issue of the ideology behind it. So as we talk about this, let's remember a couple things. First, as I shared with you all back on October 9th, the fundamental issue at play this morning in the Middle East, specifically in Israel and the, and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, is that most Arabs and Iranians or Persians do not believe that Israel should exist. In other words, they viewed that Israel's creation back in 1948, that was wrong, and that was ultimately genocidal of the Muslim people. So it is the Israelis and the Israeli state that must be slaughtered or annihilated. All right, so that's first. Second, that very passionate belief has created jihadi ideologies and groups for decades now. And we see it infused in Al-Qaeda, in ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Taliban, you name it. All right, They all embrace this uh, fundamental ideology about the Jews and the, Pal and the uh, Israeli state. And I should say it is certainly true for folks who know uh, the, the Islamic uh, terror organizations and how they are all not only similar but very different. It's true that they run the gamut in terms of size and funding and lethality and priorities and all of it. But at the end of the day, they would all hold hands when it comes to this idea of hating Israel and the Jews and destroying or murdering all of it. So considering this, how do you destroy a group like Hamas? but more importantly, perhaps, their ideology. Well, let's take the first part. At first, you, you kill the leadership. You cut the head off the snake. Second, you kill the, in this case of Hamas, the 30,000 or so known fighters. And yes, I would tell you that most of them are known by Israeli intelligence. Third, you have to keep killing the new fighters. And yes, that means all the young men who become men who then train themselves to, to blow up and, and kill as many Jews as they can. And that means that there is no finish line to that. And that is because ultimately the ideology is feeding this pipeline of young men. So not until the Arabs or the Persians or the Iranians accept that Israel has a right to exist and Jews do too, you're never going to stop this fully. 
right? There, there is no elimination to this threat. You simply reduce it. And by the way, this is how America responded to the Al-Qaeda threat back in 2001. In fact, we carried this idea through now. We knew that we were never going to completely destroy Al-Qaeda or its ideology. All we could hope to do is take this horrific global network and reduce it into sort of a rump state. And indeed, we've done that by and large, although I should say it's not gone, just degraded. As ever, there's no finish line even to our fight. So I would say to you then that the question that as we watch what's happening in the Middle East that we should be reflecting on and thinking about is whether or not the Israelis will be given that same leash to do the same things that we did for over 20 years. Well, odds are, no, they won't be. And that is because, for folks unaware, America was able to destroy or degrade much of al-Qaeda, and that's that is a radical Salafi Islamic threat. Well, it's because we had great cooperation with a whole bunch of Arab allies. They wanted those guys gone, too. But those Arab allies, they also want Israel gone. Frankly, I think, more than Islamic radicalism, in my view and experience. Now, I should say that is not true of all of the regimes or the presidents and prime ministers and the rest of it. But I will say that the rhetoric that we're hearing right now is that actually Hamas, they're the good guys and the Israelis are the bad. And if there's any doubt about that, you can listen to some recent speeches by the uh, king of Jordan. Also, Turkey's president, he very clearly calls Hamas freedom fighters and the Israelis and the Jews the bad guys. So that is why, in my view, it means that Israel, if they want to degrade Hamas, they're going to have to do it mostly on their own. They're not going to have a lot of allies in Arab lands. And then the rest of the allies that they would typically have in Europe and the United States, well, we are going to be pretty fickle, at least with current leadership in the White House. Sometimes we'll help, but sometimes not. All right, my friends, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you, and thank you for your questions. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, and equal thanks, we are going to be right back, and we are going to talk about Asia. Ladies and gentlemen, we all know that good meals equal a good, healthy body. And that's why I continue to tell you about factormeals.com. They're the folks that deliver fresh, never-frozen meals right to your doorstep. All you do is open the box, and within two minutes of heating, they are ready to enjoy. And boy, do you have a lot to enjoy. You've got 35 different meal options to choose from every week, from things like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, even vegetarian foods, if that's your cup of tea. And we are talking about good food for breakfast, lunch, dinner, plus grab-and-go snacks and cold-pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. By the way, I've got two recommendations for you. Their pork chops are top shelf, and I also love the mango smoothies. So there you go. But seriously, folks, I love Factor Meals. They are the perfect option for either very busy folks like me or retired folks who want good, healthy meals but don't want the fuss of cooking. So support the folks who support me and get Factor Meals right now at 50% off. Yeah. So here's how you do it. Go to factormeals.com slash right five zero. That's W-R-I-G-H-T five zero and get 50% off. Yes, that's code right five zero at factorymeals.com slash right five zero and get your 50% off. But I'll tell you, more importantly, you are going to get a meal service, my friends, that is good for your body and great for your taste buds. I promise. 
Folks, if you're looking for a new mattress, I've got one at 60% off. Yeah, we're talking about Ghost Bed, the company that I think makes the finest mattresses in all of America. As you know by now, I have the Lux model. That one is designed to help people like me who sleep a little bit hot. But that is not the only reason that I bought a Ghost Bed. I care mostly about craftsmanship and high-quality materials. And when you feel a Ghost Bed, you feel both the quality and the comfort. And you feel it, by the way, right out of the box, delivered right to your doorstep. Now, I do have a confession on that point. I was a little bit skeptical about buying a mattress that comes in a relatively small box. But however that magic works, well, I don't know, but it does work. And the mattresses are absolutely fantastic. Still, if you're skeptical like I was, don't worry. Ghostbed has a 101-day trial period, plus free shipping and returns, so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. So if you're looking for a mattress or you want to gift one to somebody this holiday season, go to ghostbed.com slash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And when you do, you are going to get 60% off your ghost bed purchase, but you got to use that web address. Again, folks, go to ghostbed.com slash right, W-R-I-G-H-T, and get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our unscripted episode this morning, talking about Asia. So we kick things off with Jim in Hawaii. Brian, he wrote, what would be your red line if you lived in Hawaii like me, in terms of things getting so bad in the Pacific that you think that it's just time to leave? For me, I would leave Hawaii if China attacked Guam, although I'd be pretty nervous when they would attack and take over Taiwan. So, Jim, this is a great set of questions. I think a really important set of questions for a lot of folks, not just in Hawaii. But before I answer you, I want to remind us all that this really is a serious concern. It's not just some sort of general vagary of a a fear. And I want to remind us of that for, for three reasons. First, we have U.S. intelligence, indeed a report from April, that shows that our spies and our military will not be able to quickly identify when an invasion of Taiwan will happen by the Chinese. And the reason for that is that the Chinese are being sneaky. They are increasingly conducting what, what they call drills around Taiwan, and they are bigger and more complicated with each passing week and month. So the question is, when is something just a drill or when does it uh, suddenly become an invasion? That's the fear, and that's why we can't necessarily tell. And of course, that is the point of these drills, to numb us, to confuse us. And then when the invasion actually happens, it is so swift as to prevent us from a a very quick counterattack. Second, I would tell us or remind us of how serious this is. Only a few weeks ago, President Xi warned Joe Biden, just again a couple weeks ago in San Francisco, that he will take back Taiwan preferably by peaceful means, but by force if need be. Now, on one hand, that is not necessarily a huge deal that she would say this. He says it all the time in public. But on the other hand, it was notable in that the entire meeting with Biden was supposed to be about finding ways to to lower the temperature between Beijing and D.C. And that blunt message that he said about taking back Taiwan, well, that was not really the way to do that. Third, Recall, ladies and gentlemen, that I've shared with you how China has laid down malware uh, via their various cyber attacks and hacks throughout our water systems, electricity grids, ports, railway systems, trucking companies, and so on and so on. And we know that the express goal of all of that is to ultimately flip a switch 
where they can then create chaos and anarchy when they invade Taiwan. They are hoping to inspire so much death and destruction in this country that the Oval Office would just be overwhelmed with trying to respond to that and unable to defend Taiwan. So, Jim, with that as background, your question is, when do you leave Hawaii? Well, I think that if I were you and China attacked Guam, I would be nervous. That's fair. Also, in that same vein, I would be watching for their movements of major military assets into places like Kiribati. It's a little island country that we've talked about to the south of Hawaii, as we've discussed our battle for the Pacific series. But Jim, just to emphasize something, if China were to attack Guam, that is an outright declaration of war against the United States. And at that point, they will then absolutely attack us in the mainland. That is to say the continental United States via those cyber attacks. And I'll tell you, I don't think you would want to flee Hawaii to come back for that. Because as ever, once China flips that switch, no city in this country will be safe. Some regions will be hit harder than others. We're going to talk about that more on Friday. But if you wonder what that might look like as you think about leaving Hawaii or not, you might want to remind yourself of what we saw during the Summer of Love riots of 2020 where the leftists of BLM and Antifa burned down a good chunk of this, uh, this country. And in fact, they declared their own country in Seattle, if memory serves. So I would go back and I would look at that and look at how mayors and governors at the time responded to what happened or didn't. I think that would give you a pretty good sense of which states and cities will be there for you in a crisis and which won't. All right. And with that doom and gloom, my friends, it brings me to this next question, and a little bit of light criticism, I think. So Lucinda in Idaho asked me this, Brian, a couple of weeks ago, you said with medium confidence that China will try to take Taiwan back in the next 24 months. So how can you be so sure? And don't you think, honestly, that you're trying to scare people? Really, what we need is strong, encouraging voices in this country. So Lucinda, quite right uh, that my assessment is more pessimistic than perhaps some that you might hear out there. So let's talk about what you might hear from them, what they say, and and why they might be a bit more hopeful. So first, they will say to you that China has just got way too many internal problems to deal with to invade Taiwan, right? That includes massive local and provincial debt. It includes a a very struggling economy post-COVID. Also, they've got this aging population with too many uh, few workers to take care of the, the older folks. And also, we, we've got this purge of some very important communist officials, especially within their strategic command that handles their nuclear weapons. And I will say to you that, yes, all that is true, and I've covered it all, actually. I just don't find that personally compelling. Second, people who disagree with me say this, China's economy relies on exports to the world, especially to the U.S. and Europe. And so if they were to invade Taiwan, they would be sanctioned immediately, And their exports would almost certainly be blocked. And that would mean that their economy would collapse. So that would prevent Xi from ever invading in the first place. So I hear this argument. It is both reasonable. It is logical. But leaders aren't always logical or reasoned, are they? Putin invaded Ukraine for his own reasons, even though he would have had to have assumed at some level it was unreasonable or illogical. Definitely, probably folks in D.C. thought that. And that's because we would all assume that Putin would know that he was going to be sanctioned, economically crushed, but he did it anyway. He made the gamble that he would manage. And so far, he's right. He has. 
And that is because, as he correctly assumed, the world still needs him and his oil, his diesel, his uranium, wheat, and other products. So he knew going into it that the sanctions might hit him, but they would ultimately be toothless. And I suspect that that same logic and rationale is true of China and its leadership. They know that the world needs them and their factory floors. And I think that they would understand it and accept, looking at the Russian experience, that the sanctions would be toothless as well, especially when considering that our own Congress and our own corporate American class can't remove themselves or our economy from China's reach. We have seen that for years now. Finally, people who disagree with me say that China's forces and their technology, their military, it's still young and untested, improving, but it's still young. So in other words, President Xi will want to wait as long as possible until he is utterly convinced that he can win a very decisive victory. Okay, well, maybe that's true, but you also have to understand a couple of things. Getting Taiwan back is a goal that runs absolutely deeply in the communist Chinese leadership. It is in their DNA. It it connects them to the revolutionaries of 50, 100 years ago, their grandparents and great-grandparents. It is they who fought the rebels who then fled to, well, from the mainland, I should say, to Taiwan. And that's where their kids and grandkids now live. And so Beijing wants Taiwan back. It's all about reunification, honor, pride, glory. And if that means in President Xi's eye that he has to use a a modest military that isn't quite ready, but perhaps it means that he has to lose 10 million of his men in battle, well, so be it. Just like Hamas or Islamic terrorists, if the fight is framed in, in near religious terms and people get sort of frothy about it, then 10 million people dead is worth it because to the public, they're martyrs. The other thing that I would remind us of is this. In China's view, America is weak and we are growing weaker. And part of that is because they control the supply chain to much of our economy, it's true, but especially to our military weaponry. So logic would say that they should strike when they have the maximum degree of control of that. And right now they do. Finally, and what gives me the greatest amount of pause, I think, is that China knows that modern warfare is changing with the developments, ladies and gentlemen, of cheap drones that are infused with AI. We've talked about that a lot. Indeed, the Pentagon knows this as well, and they are working on something called the Replicator Program that's trying to design a a swarm of AI-infused drones to send to Taiwan to then attack China's invading forces over the Taiwanese Strait, and in other words, even the playing field. The Pentagon, as I've shared with you, plans to deploy this system within the next 24 months. And yes, I know I've got some uh, emails from listeners saying, well, reporting suggests that maybe the Pentagon can't pull that off. I'm aware of that reporting. But I tell you, nevertheless, China understands that fundamentally, whether we talk about 18 months, 24 months, 28 months, modern warfare is changing. And these drone swarms will make it very difficult to take uh, Taiwan by force over time. So that is why I continue to believe that based on all that I know about this target and all that I've shared with you, I I still have medium confidence that China will move on Taiwan over the next 24 months, even with all the limitations and counter arguments that I've just laid out. So we'll talk about this more on Friday, about what this means for you and what to do about it, how to prepare if you share this assessment. But Lucinda, that is my view, and it is based on experience and informed analysis. 
And back to your question about whether or not I should be speaking it, uh, whether or not that's fear-mongering. Well, being honest about this, I think, is important. It's not fear-mongering to have reasoned conversations to prepare folks against what is, by all reasonable measure, a very serious threat. In fact, I think that that is the very definition of good leadership. Next up, we've got Jerry in Panama City, Panama, who wrote in. He's an expat living in that beautiful little country. So here is his observation. Brian, I have noticed that you don't talk a lot about China's influence in Latin America. And it's a little bit odd because that's our backyard, my backyard, literally. So what's up with that? Well, Jerry, quite right. For what it's worth, I've got a lot of great information on this. It's going to be very similar to my battle for the Pacific. But here's the deal. I don't have time. I've got one person to do this show. It's me. And it takes me 12 to 15 hours each day to research, write, edit, record, and then wait for my sound guy to edit and get me back an episode so I can get it all to you. And that's hard. And it is the challenge ultimately of being independent. And that is just not going to change unless I have more resources and I can hire a staff, which unfortunately I just can't do right now. Hopefully if I get to 20 to 30% of all my listeners becoming paid subscribers, we can get there, but we're only about 10, 12% right now. So we're just shy of what I need. But in the meantime, I am tracking your critique and it is fair. And I will continue to work on it bit by bit over time. And I'll bring it to you when it's game ready. But I will just emphasize, you are right to say that this is massively important to cover because you are spot on. China is eating our lunch in Latin America with key relationships, infrastructure under their control. And we need to talk about it. So more to come. Fair critique, Jerry. Finally, this morning, a great question from Jared in North Virginia, in my old stomping grounds. Brian, he said, let's do a thought experiment. The president taps you to lead our counter China programs for one year. What do you do? (sighs) Jared, you tease me because that is the only job that I would ever even remotely consider taking again and going back to D.C. and working for Uncle Sam. So let me let me tell you, uh, let me scope out for you what I would do or the counsel that I would offer the president. All right. And I'm going to give you a top 10 list. First, eject all Chinese nationals or visa holders from the United States. And I've shared this with you before, but let's remind ourselves of why this is so important. Beijing has something called a national intelligence law. And that means the Chinese citizens, no matter where they are in the world, can be compelled to do whatever China wants them to do. So we also know what that means, not just generally speaking in terms of the threat, but but why the FBI then focuses on the Chinese threat so intensely. Indeed, we know that they opened a counterintelligence case against a Chinese national or a Chinese-related concern every 10 hours or so, every day of the week, every week of the year. So with that kind of threat, there is no way you can resource a response to keep a lid on it. You have to do something that some people might, I understand, consider to be draconian. You have to eject all Chinese nationals or visa holders from this country and reset things. So, by the way, I am aware that uh, by acknowledging this, talking about it, recommending it, that uh, I or a POTUS or president uh, who would do the same would be getting a lot of smears about this, calling it, you know, racist. But uh, I don't care. Second, what I would also recommend is ban all Chinese nationals from owning property of any kind in this country or any ownership of any company at all. Again, 
China's uh, national intelligence law dictates that all those properties or any of those companies that Chinese uh, nationals own, they can be used for the pleasure of the Communist Party. In other words, they're, they're spy dens. So remove them or they will remove you. Third, we're going to need to tell Mexico and Canada that they've got to eject all companies that are owned in part or in whole by a Chinese citizen that operates in their nations. And if Mexico and Canada refuse to do this, then what we have to do is withdraw from our trade deal with them. It's called the USMCA or it's the old NAFTA. So the reason why we have to do this is pretty straightforward. Beijing, as I briefed you all on, is relocating their businesses from Asia to just miles either north or south of our border. And they're doing that to get around the tariffs and the laws that we have passed. And they're taking advantage then of this USMCA because, of course, they are. So we tell Mexico, Canada, play ball or we're out. Fourth, we have to tell U.S. companies that have operations in China that all goods coming into the U.S. will, f- from that country will face a 25% tariff, and that will increase each month into perpetuity. And by the way, the U.S. government, we need to tell them, we, we will not help all these corporations uh, that are operating in China if, say, President Xi or the CCP jams them up by either arresting their personnel or seizing their assets. We don't care. They made a choice, and they got to live with it. So that is the, the stick, Right? But now we also need to offer them a carrot. We promise corporate America that if they come back home, if they reshore those, those operations and rebuild, we've got to give them some pretty major tax breaks from income to things like automation systems because their argument is humans, Americans, are very expensive. So we've got to find a way to incentivize automation. Fifth, let's talk about drugs. We should start a global campaign of targeted lethal operations against Chinese companies and personnel who have been involved in the drug trade. And here's the bottom line. We know with absolute certainty that the communists have killed hundreds of thousands of Americans by winking and nodding as their toadies and their their militias and their mafias have operated these fentanyl facilities in particular. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I want revenge for those deaths. Those were my fellow Americans and yours, and they deserve justice. Sixth, I think we should start a global cyber operation that attacks Chinese businesses' interests in Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. And that would include things like mining companies or shipping companies. We need to bring that stuff down or at least bring it to a very slow crawl. As we do that, we should steal their intellectual property, just like they have done to us for decades. And we should use it or otherwise deploy it. And yes, for folks who wonder about this one, China will absolutely figure it out at some point and get very angry. And to that, we say to them diplomatically behind the scenes, let's declare a truce, shall we? But we are going to need to talk about compensation for the 600 billion you steal from us each year and have for over 20 years. So let's make a deal. Next, we use covert action operations to degrade their global fleet of fishing companies. I briefed you on this previously, but just in short, these over 10,000 ships operating all around the world are destroying global fishing stocks. And they're putting the locals in each of these nations either out of business and or very, very angry. In other words, the Chinese are hated for what they do in all these places. So let's build on that anger and that outrage. Let's cut some nets. Let's uh, sink some ships if we have to or take care of some fishing company owners. Maybe they'll go missing on a safari. 
8th, I think that we should start a global Intel campaign about, well, it's called uh, cold pitches in the world of Intel. So here's how this works. Our CIA officers or FBI officers would approach Chinese diplomats and Intel uh, officers around the world and offer them a deal, right? They would work with us and they would give us Intel and we would give them cash, maybe even citizenship, but they're going to have to earn it and prove their value with very highly classified Intel. So this does two things. First, it's possible that through these cold pitches, we could get good Intel, but I would tell you that cold pitches don't work very often, but that's okay. Because second, it's disruptive to both their diplomatic and intelligence operations, right? They, these folks who get pitched or cold pitched have to immediately uh, report this stuff. And usually they get pulled home to Beijing. And that's a good thing. Number nine on this top 10 list, we conduct a global overt public relations campaign telling the world about how evil the Communist Party is. We need to remind people all around this globe of the concentration camps that they operate, uh, China's spreading of nuclear and ballistic missile technology to countries like Iran. We need to tell people the story of the surveillance state that has been created in China and the theft of liberty. We need to tell the stories of the killing of human rights campaigners and the silencing of those voices. We should also disclose how Beijing has hacked and stolen intellectual property of not just us, but nations all around the world. In fact, you would be surprised where they've done it. We have public examples of this in places like Kenya. So in other words, we have to ensure that the globe knows that China is evil. Finally, and most delicately, you are going to need a properly run FBI to investigate members of Capitol Hill, the White House, the CIA, the Pentagon, even fellow FBI members, all for their collusion with the Communist Party of China. And I can tell you with high confidence that the Chinese have penetrated every single one of those institutions, right? They, they've got our elites absolutely wired. So to counteract that, you are going to need a special team of FBI agents that operate under an excellent director who guides this team of, of untouchables, much like we had, you know, 100 years or so ago to take down the mobs that run major American cities. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it is now the Chinese who are running us and our major cities. And if we want to survive this assault and we want to lead the world away from this communist nightmare, then we need to adopt not just what I mentioned here in item number 10, but frankly, these other nine policies. But I'll tell you, but before we get to get to any of the other nine, this last one is so important because we have to rip out the rot from our own institutions too to demonstrate to the world that we're serious. And that ultimately starts again with these untouchables running these investigations, and ultimately bringing to justice, frankly, the traitors in our capital who have sold us out. And with that, Jared, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's unscripted episode of The Right Report. Two final requests for you this morning. What did you think of today's episode? I'd love your feedback. Second, if you would like me to answer one of your questions in the future on one of these unscripted episodes or just in any episode, it's really easy to do. Either donate via my Stripe account, which you will find a link for in the show notes. Just make sure you leave your email and I'll be in touch. Otherwise, go to writereport.substack.com, sign up, and at the bottom of each day's Substack post, you can leave me a comment or ask me a question.
As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.